Welcome to episode 22 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Russ here with Mike in Muggy, Japan. Yeah, it's Muggy and we had some storms today, boy. And yet here I am, really high energy with my uh, Corvo white wine today. It's a nice summer drink. Yeah, nice summer drink. I'm going I'm going for the cold beverages in the summer. I think I'll go back to the uh the 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 uh harder stuff in the winter when I when when I really need it. <laughs> well, I <laughs> to keep uh, warm among other things and and zane. <laughs> I roasted a chicken for dinner. I was going to uh cook it outside with a little smoke and that's when I saw the radar with those huge storms coming. So I opted for wow. inside with a uh well, I could have gone white wine, but I, I had this Primitivo that I really wanted to try out. So oh, I that's had good. that. And now I've switched over to the official beverage the of official adult drink. music. Yes, the official the drink. The official drink of adult music. Sorry, I stepped on that. The that's official right. drink of adult music. Knob Creek Single Barrel, uh, yeah, which once the sun goes down. Uh, yeah. yeah, you can never have too much of Knob Creek Single Barrel. Single in Barrel. Yeah, Single Barrel, everybody. Single the other barrel, one's yeah. good, too. The, so it's okay. Yeah, yeah, but, it's good, you know, but this one's special. I like it. You know, in this world we live in with uncertainties, uh, you know, the money you would save on the regular one, uh, you couldn't spend it on anything better uh, yeah. in these times. So that's what and we And you're supporting an American uh, company there. So that's there you right. go. Good old so Kentucky. it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. So this is episode 22, just on the heels of bonus episode two, uh, our second interview with Gil Rose, the musical director and conductor of the Boston Modern Orchestra Project that we released on Friday. Yeah, what does he call it? BMOP? BMOP. I was like thinking B-bop. BMOP. He's, he yeah. called, they call it BMOP. BMOP, like bebop, but not. That's what he said. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was kind of Oh, catchy. that's right. That's good. That's, a, that's pretty clever, you got to say. Yeah. So that's an yeah, excellent so that interview. interview. Anyone who uh, likes modern music and wants to see what's on the cutting edge of the frontier of modern music, especially American music. And, well, let's uh, say 20th century music. Huh? 20th, yeah, I guess. Yeah, it, there, there's some contemporary music in there, yeah, too. He hinted we talk, that, everything we talked about was sort of um, 20th yeah, century. 20th century. Or, hint, John Adams would be contemporary. Though, he but, hinted yeah. that they're, you know, they're interested in recording what's happening now, and they, they look at any submissions and things from modern composers. So, uh, you know, who knows what direction they'll go because they record so much i mean yeah just launching these uh, recordings out there one after the other so yeah i didn't i didn't mention this to him but i'm gonna put this out there i hope they record and release some music by christopher rouse because i like his music a lot american composer deceased a few years ago we talked about him uh on the grammy episode because we heard his symphony number five Right, uh, so I want to hear yeah. some of that. This stuff is exciting. Be, yeah, yeah I like it. Yeah, we should have a lot of unrecorded that, music but... by him still. So, yeah, I still want to hear. Right. So there it is. All right. But uh, as we usually do, we're going to. Well, yeah, I guess it's kind of going back to Baroque start uh, tonight in the classical well, sections. Kind of at the this, end. This would be the i guess they'd call this the gallant style because gallant came between yeah. baroque and classical it's sort of the bridge there uh all right let me let me explain this to the listeners who might just be listening to it because they they like our goofy style and they don't <laughs> they didn't study music okay the baroque era was like box era so it was like from it started in italy in the 1600s 
In fact, in the year 1600, they actually picked the year. There's even a date. I can't even remember what it is off the top of my head. I should be able to. But there's a date in the year 1600 where the first opera was, the first successful opera was performed. The first opera was performed around 1597. And then in the year 1600, there was a specific date when they say Baroque music began on this date. Wow. Um, so, uh, which is kind of funny. Uh, if you think, because when we think about this, we think it's it kind of reminds me of... Um, the, when you think about this, you, you have this idea, like when you study, like everybody suddenly stopped composing, like the Renaissance era choral music, and everybody started uh, There's a moratorium uh, composing in the Baroque style, it, yeah. which is not the case at all. In fact, um, this is interesting for listeners, a little fun fact for all of you out there. Uh, the word Baroque is a pejorative term, okay? It's... um. It was a, in kind of an insult aimed at this kind of music. This very busy, gaudy music was referred to as Baroque, like overly busy. It's like not as uh, lean and uh, beautiful as the Renaissance era mass, okay? But the name stuck, and we still call this music Baroque music. It's actually an insult. Can we use pejoratives with our clean rating on our podcast? Uh, we can use Baroque. I, oh, okay. I understand that one is... Um, <laughs> yeah. It's acceptable Actually, if we now. were in the year 1600, they might... Uh, they, if, if we were doing this huh? podcast in the year 1600, they might take us down oh. for for using that word. But uh, it's not a pejorative in that sense. Well, we could call but, it uh, Son of Baroque. Son of Baroque. Kind yeah. of, yeah. Then there are all those lame jokes again. Well, I didn't break it. You know, get out of here with that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> none, none of that here. None of that. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, anyway... Um, so the Baroque era really culminated with Handel and Bach, and it's really considered to be uh, to end with the death of Bach, although Handel died like seven years after him, so it really kind of continued. And then uh, the classical era, now this is not to be confused with classical music, classical music with a, uh, yeah, music scholars are the worst, they come up with these really terrible terms. Uh, the classical style, because it was aiming at the kind of like clarity of line that uh, they saw in ancient uh, Greek and Roman statues, the classical era. Uh, so the clarity of line in like music like Haydn and Mozart and then Beethoven would have been the end of the classical era and really the beginning of something else. In fact, uh, Robert Greenberg calls uh, Beethoven's uh, period of composing the Beethoven era because he's not really romantic, but he's mm. not classical either. He's just Beethoven. <laughs> but um, between... Until Haydn and Mozart really perfected this style, we decided it was going to be, you know, that that was really the way to go. Uh, there was something called the Gallant style, and it was more, um, it was aiming towards the classical style, but it was kind of more varied, and it was kind of, scholars kind of think of it as dull music. It's not terribly, not interesting things happening in it, but it's really nice. I mean, it's it's good to listen to. Well, this fellow and, who we're going to listen to has lots of interesting stuff happening in his music. He does. And in fact, um, the, the composer we're talking about, I don't know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a secret because people have probably read the name in the uh, in the listing already before they turn yeah. the podcast on. It's like Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, the um, the oldest surviving son of the great Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, he's the second son overall. Okay. But uh, he was the oldest surviving son and he wound up in... Uh, um, Hamburg. He was sort of, he was the uh, Kapellmeister in Hamburg during his lifetime. Um, he's also a big favorite of adult music of the adult music podcast. Uh, Russ and I have uh, bonded over his music over the years. There have been some pretty good recordings. He's made yeah. a big comeback. 
Okay. Now he's uh, Johann Sebastian Bach's, uh, you know, oldest surviving son, and he was also friends with Mozart. Mozart, Mozart really loved his music, and you can kind of tell why. Uh, uh, Mozart was said to be a bit of a practical joker. He liked a good uh, joke. He liked to laugh a lot. He wasn't quite the uh, laughing hyena that you, that's um, that we see in the movie Amadeus, but he was kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sort of uh, witty. Let's say he liked he liked good wit. As did Haydn, by the way. Uh, Joseph Haydn. Anyway, Carfield Emanuel Bach had a good musical sense of humor, and uh, we hear a lot of it in this recording. Let me just say what it is. Um, it's uh, an album called Beyond the Limits, played by Gli Inconiti, uh, the unknowns. <laughs> Gli Inconiti. <laughs> um, I don't know. Is it? Yeah, maybe. I think it's the unknowns. And Amandine Bayer is the uh, director of this group. Okay, now. And the album is called Beyond the Limits. It's on Harmonia Mundi. The Harmonia yeah, the Mundi label, French label. Symphonies, right? Yeah, the complete string symphonies. Beyond the limits, complete string symphonies. So this is all of the, uh, yeah, they, they there. There's a set of them. There are six of them that were kind of released, I guess, together as a set. And then there's one extra, I think, that doesn't belong to the set. All right, string symphonies. Now the thing, part of the reason you haven't heard much of Carl Emanuel Bach's music is because. It's got a lot of little jokey sort of um, things in it. Like there's a lot of, um, if we think about Baroque music, there's a lot of, there are a lot of motor rhythms and sort of things like that. And Carl Philip Emanuel, CPE, let's just call him, uh, enjoys like just having that rhythm going and then just slamming on the brakes and like, whoa, you know, you kind of get this kind of feeling of being, you know, lurching forward or something when that happens. There's some odd harmonies like that come at really odd places. And the real, it's up to the performer to kind of put these jokes across by way of timing. Not an easy thing to do and not something that all professional musicians do. I've heard quite a few um, performers of CPE box music um, play it and just play it straight. And they just kind of play over these little sort of like harmonic indelicacies and stuff like that without really doing anything to, to, to make it the punchline that it should be. Right. Okay. And it just doesn't come across as well. You, you wind up thinking, oh, it's not as good as Mozart. Mozart. I'm saying Mozart tonight. I don't know why. All right. Mozart. Yeah, it's not as good as him. And yeah, I guess it's not. But it's good in its own right. Okay. It's uh, worth hearing, let's say. Especially in good performances. And I'm happy to say this is one of them. This is one worth hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to start a coffee, Philip Emanuel Bach, uh, start listening to his music. Um the the uh, ensemble yeah, in really all six of these they're they're kind of similar really mm-hmm. um, yeah they're all three movement uh, works and they tend to um, uh, blend together you don't get like one movement pause one movement pause one tends to go into the other and this is I think part of the uh, the appeal and the humor uh, where like part of the slamming on the brakes is suddenly slowing down into this slow movement all of a sudden before you know it you're in the second the second slow movement. And um, you don't you don't really realize what happened, okay? And um, this um yeah this ensemble really gets him. They put his musical personality across exceptionally well. A lot of the um there there are sometimes these sort of contrasting uh, lines in the cellos that kind of like uh kind of contrast with what's happening in the violins, and they make that really loud and sort of um you know kind of. Uh, you know, make sure you hear it as something that really doesn't seems not to belong there, but is intruding into the the musical texture. Um, there are the usual sl- slamming on the brakes, the uh, 
you know, the, um, the cheerful endings with, um, the figuration interrupted. I really enjoyed this a lot. She, she really gets it. She, she got the jokes and, um, this is Amandine Bayer, the director and the ensemble got the jokes and really put them across. So if you're looking for an in or a way to, uh, start enjoying Carl Philip Emanuel box means this is a good place to start. I thought, it's yeah, I first, thought, uh, I like this one a lot that the recording is excellent too. The strings. Yeah. Oh yeah. The strings have this kind of very lively tone. Um, and as you mentioned, the performances, they capture the really tight energy. Uh, I feel like C.P. Yeah. Bach has to be paid really tightly in order to get those, you know, sudden things that happen in his music. And that energy is here with, and it yeah. shows the playfulness of his style uh, really well. And when I heard this one, it made me want to go back to the other recording uh, I think we've listened to together, uh, and I'd we... recommend this as a companion set. So these are the string symphonies, and there's a 2015 Hyperion recording of the full symphonies of C.P.E. Bach. That's ah, by uh, okay. Rebecca Miller and the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment. And yeah, so you know, I don't symphonies... remember that one as well. I gotta listen to that again. <laughs> I think that one also captures that you know sort of energy, sort of stop on a dime. Uh, do something unexpected, uh, somewhat humorous, uh, mm. but you know, with a, a broader orchestration. And so both of these, I think, are you know really good in that sort of uh, display of his music and in the humorous, interesting points of it. You get a feeling like you know, as a kid, he was sitting around listening to his father play all this stuff, and he absorbed it. And then he, you know, in Baroque music, there's a lot of beauty, but there's a lot of that, you know, sort of required structure so right. you get this idea that he was thinking where all the jokes could be put into those right. lines you know and yeah, that, uh there's, there's some humor in there you know yeah. I, can, I, can, and, I can just put uh, it in there it's done so well and enjoyably uh, i always like to listen to his music in the morning so uh i, yeah. I like this recording as much as i liked that other one and i would recommend them as a set but this one is definitely uh Good sound quality, great performances, and uh, you know, something to listen clean, to. Clean string textures, too. It seemed like there was a lot of space in this recording, too. And that gives room for the uh, the humor to kind of come through because yeah. you can hear it creeping in, you know, from, you know, sort of um, you, just because of the change in texture yeah. or in, in, in harmony or things like that. It was, yeah, this is a really nice recording. Um, what did I want to say about this? It was cough, cough. If you're someone who's interested in humor in music, now, you know, Beethoven's Haydn, Haydn especially, uh, Mozart and even Beethoven have uh, humor in their music, though it's a little harder to kind of identify, especially with Beethoven, because we kind of think of him as being so serious. You know, everybody's like, you know, there all were these paintings. He, yeah. There was paintings of him with a furrowed <laughs> brow, but there, there's there's quite a bit of humor in uh, Beethoven's music, including the symphonies. Um, I think at the end of the second symphony, the the last movement of the second symphony, or there are others, but um, <laughs> yeah. I can come up with them. But yeah, some of them really are very deadly serious, like the Fifth Symphony and the Third. There's not really not no. Although the Third Symphony does have kind of humor in the Fourth Movement, the kind of like dancey yeah, I sort of. It does. Yeah. yeah, it's a little surprising. But uh, yeah, if you're interested in that idea, it's all about the timing, as comedians will let you know. Um, and. Uh, Recordings like this require classical musicians to have a sense of uh, timing and an awareness of harmony as well to uh, put these put this humor across. Um, this is this is kind of serious music that's kind of humorous. It's not like uh, 
um, you know, sort of, um, you know, Victor Borga or something like that. No, with no, it's actually, all in the way going that, for humor. I think it's all in the rhythm, uh, yeah. the way he gets these momentums going and then, you know, right. things sort of shift and <laughs> you've got this you know, huge momentum going in one direction and now you're headed in a completely different direction. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I get I think that it in all of it's kind of like being music. at the bumper cars in the amusement park where yeah. you kind of crash into the other car and suddenly you're off in another direction. It yeah. kind of feels a little I, like that. I always enjoy it. Yeah, me too. Um, please don't confuse C.P.E. Bach with P.D.Q. Bach, who's not a real Bach. He's uh, an invention of Peter Chickaly. Uh Also worth hearing, by the yes. way, because uh, they're, they're very humor, funny, yes, these, yeah. these compositions. Yes. But this isn't the same type of humor. This is actually no. something from back in the uh, 18th century. And I kind of get the idea that uh, Peter Chickaly, when he invented P.D.Q. Bach, must have been aware of C.P.E.'s oh, sure, yeah. music. You know, it's a different kind of humor, but nevertheless, it's the same. It's the same kind of sense, you know, the same kind of, you know, kind of clever sort of um, way of thinking about music that kind of leads to both of these. It's sort of taking, you know, the established patterns and uh, developments and then, you know, playing with people's expectations and sort of turning them on their ear. uh, Right. Yeah. You can tell that he's amusing himself when he's doing that with these changes of directions and hoping that the listener will probably. Uh, yeah, not only that, Mozart, uh, Mozart loved this music. And uh, if you listen to it, you'll kind of get a feeling of what kind of person Mozart was. Okay. He seemed to be a, a pretty easy person to be around as long as he wasn't begging for money. <laughs> but, <laughs> he, uh, d- despite his unbelievable genius, he. Uh, he was, a, he, was a, he was a person that liked a good laugh, apparently, and was yeah. uh, clever about that. So I, I, I imagine that uh, C.P.E. Bach and Mozart must have had a good time together when they were when they were hanging around. You know, C.P.E. was the older of the two, by the way. All right, I guess we're done with that. It's not really That's much it. to say about it, except that it's really fun. It's yeah. a, it's a good album. Check it out. Yeah, there we go. We're we're okay. All right, so C.P.E. Bach recommended. Amandine Bayer, Gli Inconiti. The unknowns. <laughs> Where are they? Who are they? <laughs> I, I hope I'm getting that right off the yeah. top of my head. I kind of the incogniti. Who are they? They're the incogniti. Right. It's kind of a cool name. Yeah, incognito, right? It yeah. means that you're kind of in disguise. Yes. I see them, but I don't believe them. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anyway, on to. I guess we're going to have to go on to the next thing. Jumping forward in time. Yeah, way forward in time. We're yes. in the early 20th century now with Claude Debussy. Now, this album recently came out, and if you're in, interested in classical music, you probably heard about it. This is um because uh, Martha Argerich is on it, one of the great pianists of the 20th century. Okay, and uh, she uh, just celebrated her 80th birthday, wow. um, and she's actually this recording was made in 2018, so she was a uh, much younger at the age of 77 when she uh, made this recording. And sounds great, I have to say. Yeah. Um, she's got a nice facility at the piano still in her older age. It's nice yeah. to hear. Now, first of all, it's being... When this was released, you know, just the fact that she was on it was advertised and we heard a lot about that. But this is really a Daniel Barenboy now album. He's the conductor and he plays on all of the tracks. Um, well, there are two um, chamber music tracks on this too and he plays on both of them. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, this program includes Debussy's very early fantasy pour piano et orchestre, 
the fantasy for piano and orchestra. And this is Baron Boim conducting and Martha Argerich playing the piano part. Um, the other works are uh, two late, um, really two of the last works that Debussy composed in his life, two chamber works, the violin sonata and the cello sonata. Now, on these two recordings, Baron Boim is playing the piano, mm-hmm. along with his son, Michael Baron Boim, playing the violin yeah. and the violin sonata, and Kian Soltani on the cello on those. And the very last work is the orchestral work La Mer, uh, one of my favorite works, by the way. I love Debussy's music, really. This is, this is a happy week for me because I heard old music I really like. And, and this is uh, uh, Deutsche Grammophon here, too. Right? Yes, it's on yeah. Deutsche Grammophon. And uh, Baron Boim is the conductor of that piece. He is conducting the Staatskapelle Berlin. Okay. Anyway, this uh, recording, I have to say, really struck me. I liked it a lot. Um, it's a little different than what you usually hear. Now, the Fantasy pour Piano et Orchestre, I'm really familiar with this from uh, one of our favorite pianists, uh, Jean-Aflam Bavouze's uh, performance from uh, six or seven years ago. Now, he goes for a more sort of um, pastel approach, shall we say. Like, he's really going for the uh, tone. He's a French pianist. It figures he would, really. Um, He's going for the timbre. He wants the uh, the, all those kind of beautiful sounds in the uh, symphony register. The yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Now, in this case, with Argerich at the piano and you know, giants, really, Baron Boim conducting and Argerich at the piano, um, the both of them go more for phrasing. And this was really interesting for me because this piece and Debussy's pieces in general, the, the form seems to be melting. I kind of think of like Dali's melting clocks or something like that. <laughs> like these sections kind of melt into each other. You're not really right. sure where one ends and one begins. And it just sounds like one big block of music. Now, in this particular piece, this is a very early Debussy work. Um, they they work really hard on the, uh, what we, we call them, the phrases, let's say. I don't want to say motifs because they're not really motifs. Um, but the just the phrasing. And it kind of gives the work like focus and definition that it didn't have in the earlier um, Bavouze recording, which is actually excellent anyway. Uh, but right. it's, just, it, it's, it's just a different approach. Um, so I really liked that. I liked hearing it like this. There was a lot of orchestral detail that popped out because of this approach. Um, the, um, just just because um, I guess the the phrasing just sort of set off certain elements in the in the orchestra. And Argerich's playing is um, she doesn't really have to do anything super virtuosic in this work, but nevertheless, there's still some uh, uh, pretty serious like you know scales and runs on the piano and she just executes them perfectly it's just fantastic this is she's this is a 77 year old woman now just playing beautifully gets a beautiful sound phrasing is all perfect this is a really beautiful performance of this work and uh, well worth your time to hear hmm. i found the same qualities in the uh the two chamber works and i love these works to the skies really these uh the violence and out first of all uh father and son playing this daniel barenboim on the piano and michael barenboim on violin uh again highly um, realized phrasing, like where all the breaths are going to be were very clearly thought out. And this brings out a lot of um, hidden elements in the textures. I really, in, I liked this a lot because um, this piece has a lot of changing sort of rhythm within the overall pulse of the work, as does the cello um, sonata. And you can hear all those changes very clearly with the way the phrasing is done. Right? They they actually kind of um, seem to highlight uh, these elements. Uh, so I I I felt like I came away with this with a 
deeper understanding of how the work is put together. Um, yeah, and the same is true for the uh, the cello sonata. The cello is played by Kian Sultani, as I said. Same thing. Um, I've always really loved this work. And um, I also like the way in this one, in the very opening, the piano starts. When, when I hear recordings of this work, uh, the piano tends to drown out the uh, cello's uh, entrance. And that is not the case here. Um, I think um, Baron Boim kind of steps back a little bit and really gives us Kian Sultani the spotlight and uh, his entry is really nice on this really deep bass note rising up really beautiful um, also the um, oh by the way if you want to hear a great recording of this uh, there was one made by uh, Mstislav Rostropovich and Benjamin Britten at the piano uh, years ago they really um, executed this really I think really I have well that one, yeah. yeah it's a really famous recording nothing like a, con- a composer kind of playing uh music because they see all the elements. Baron Boy was sort of the same or similar here because um, I remember uh, playing this on a recording for somebody once and uh, the middle movement has a lot of like these uh, pizzicati and the cello and the it's a bit um, abstract shall we say yeah. and I remember saying oh I don't like um, you know modern music which <laughs> which this is but it doesn't come across as modern no. music. It was just that particular performance. I think here again, the phrasing just kind of makes it all fit in beautifully. And then there's this really joyful um, ending movement in the cello sonata. I liked it a lot. I really like this because of Sultani's tone. It's yeah. extremely warm, but also very delicate. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's more delicate than most other uh cello tones that I've heard on here uh, it's it still works really really well but it, it's got it, it's seemingly sort of disparate qualities to it uh, when he's bowing on these notes the, the tone is extremely warm but it, it it's never uh, overpowering uh, as you said Barenboim is careful to not overpower the cello on the piano especially in the intro but I think he allows him to play it uh, rather softly. And, yeah, uh, that could be. Yeah. So, I, I really felt it's uh, you know a delicate performance and well nuanced, uh, which right. matches you know the character of it. So I, you know, I especially like the uh, the uh, cello piece on here. Yeah, in fact, I would say well nuanced is a good uh, description for the first three works on this album. Okay, then we get to La Mer. And uh, I think this performance sort of lets down the side. I didn't really think much of this. Now, part of the problem with it for me is that the uh, the bass end is way too loud. Right? I think it sounds like there's a lot of um, bass instruments. Now we remember that French. This is not a French orchestra, by the way. It's a it's a it's a German one. It's the Staatskapelle Berlin. And we remember from uh, a recording that we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, it was a uh, Le Siecle, Franz Xavier Roth, where he said that um, French orchestras tend to play with the heavier bass. And I'm wondering if Baron Boim really took that uh, rather literally and just added bass to the uh, hmm. to this particular uh, ensemble. It, it's it's a little overpowering, and it kind of um, overshadows a lot of the, the delicate uh, tonality of the uh, higher end. I think the French would know how to do this, but... Um, one of the things I got from this is Debussy is rather his entire style that he arrived at in the uh, early 20th century with works like La Mer and starting with uh, Prelude à l'après-midi d'un fond um, 
started with uh, it was kind of a reaction against the music of Richard Wagner, the the or- the the operas, who uh, had really um, uh, influenced or <laughs> infected everyone, depending <laughs> on your um, perspective, during the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. And uh, Debussy was writing, he, he began with this kind of like lighter style, but he was very heavily influenced by Wagner in the beginning, as was everybody. But he eventually found a way out of that. And I almost feel like in this performance that Baron Boehm is trying to highlight the Wagnerian elements of this score. Now, it's true, like, you know, I guess you never get rid of your earlier style entirely, but the whole texture of this work is kind of, it's much lighter than anything well Wagner had lighter textures too but Wagner was really well known for these beautiful like sort of like brass sort of you know long brass lines and just uh, mm. these these very long sort of uh, beautifully high, highly textured sort of uh, passages and um, in La Mer here uh, Baron Boyne takes a slower tempo than normal and whenever I heard like the brass or some or like the cellos or the basses I, I almost felt like um, he was trying to like bring out like something Wagnerian in them and I don't really think they're there as much as he's trying to say he they are if I'm correct and imagine in imagine this but that's what I heard when I when I listened to this uh some of my things I, I know this work very well and I like it a lot and I think a lot of, and I still haven't I don't have like an ideal recording of this yet I have lots of them and they're all kind yeah, of I have a lot of them too but yeah uh, yeah none of them is really like blowing me away unless there there are some I like more than others um, but th- yeah, this one, it, it kind of, um, it obscures because of the bass and because of all this, it obscures a lot of the detail that I really love in this work. Now on the, on the plus side, as with the other three, um, uh, work, the other three works on this disc, he kind of, um, on this album, I guess he, uh, Baron Boyne sort of, um, phrases everything beautifully there's like a beginning and an end to a phrase it's it's a very german way of playing really you know there's a this is where this ends and then the next one begins here Debussy's music though isn't constructed like that it's constructed so that it'll kind of like melt into the next um phrase i think this started with foray who was trying to sort of um get a feeling for trying to make french uh, an authentically french music and uh using the french language as a a model whereas like words will kind of like melt into each other sort of like the they don't stop like one juice sweet you know like there's kind of like that there's no silence in between the words and uh, i think they sort of are you know that Forêt and then Debussy especially really arrived at a style like that um, but we're, we're kind of aware of this kind of like I think attempt to find sections in this work where there really shouldn't be any and it sort of it, it interrupts the whole flow I feel like and he does kind of like do these like really um, momentary pauses between where he you know mm. ends one phrase and begins another to kind of indicate oh this is the next panel in the uh in the the big painting that is this score and it doesn't really work for this work it's got a flow like the sea like the ocean doesn't have any divides in it right it's just all waves and i think uh, wc was after something like that the middle movement um uh, is called jeu de vague which is a the uh, game or play of the waves like you know something like that is kind of famous for not having any repeating material it sort of goes from one section to another to another to another and it just doesn't there's nothing really to hold on to really um Mm -hmm. except that the uh 
in Debussy's music, the timbre really carries the the sound of the instruments are making really carry the meaning. It's it's not really in the melodies, and uh, so I think this uh, this approach really kind of the Barenboim's approach really breaks down in this particular movement. He gets some ominous um, things in the uh, the last movement, uh, dialogue du ventre de la mer, which means the dialogue or conversation between the the uh, wind and the sea. So you get like a sea storm in there, which is very cool. But um, they're just, I don't know, there's, there's, there are just too many, there's so many beautiful details in this work and they just don't come across in this particular performance. Now, I would say my conclusion about this album is that you want to hear it for the first three works, which are all beautifully done, but I feel like there are better recordings of La Mer out there. And that's what I would say about this. Yeah, I kind of agree. I didn't uh, think so critically about La Mer, but having other recordings of it, when I got to that, I sort of unconsciously tuned out. And <laughs> that's that's what you tend to do. Yeah, when you say, I just oh, had a I, I had a general get, feeling right, this, that that I've heard this better on other recordings. Yeah, I have uh, right. uh, I have Charles Dutois and. Uh, mm. Uh, a couple other Dutois was a great uh, great one for ta- orchestral timbre yeah and yeah. a few other recordings plus we had all that Debussy series in the last uh, year or so uh, two years ago that was yeah, yeah that was on the the Harmonia Mundi Debussy yeah. series those were mostly good some of them were a little odd but they were all interesting yeah. I liked them all but definitely I, I was listening intently through the uh, chamber program on the uh, earlier part of this recording which uh, as we said is really good so yeah, um, at least for those works, it's definitely worth listening to. They're uh, really good, and it has that wonderful Deutsche Grammophon uh, recording quality to it. Yeah. So the sound quality is wonderful, and uh, yeah, very but- nice performances on the chamber works. Uh, father, son, uh, the family chemistry seems to add something to it, the sort of... Uh, synchronized uh, understanding and the phrasing and things and then I really enjoyed the cello work too La Mer I thought was nothing special for this uh, interpretation yeah. and maybe a bit cloudy his approach, yeah, yeah his approach so. on the two chamber works were just fantastic yeah. I really I thought those were really beautiful they were a little different mm-hmm. see now one thing you said um, Russ was like and you said oh, I've heard better performances of this and we don't really I think we don't want to really be thinking about once you think better, you, you know, you know, you know, you, you, what you're saying is you don't want to really hear this performance again. <laughs> you know, but the thing is, what you're going for is really you want to hear different, you know, just interesting, okay? But and um, but this one wasn't in that category. I didn't feel like. I mean, it's just I, I thought the same thing. I thought other um, recordings were better, and I would rather hear them. Yeah. Okay. Like I've heard maybe better performances of the violin and uh, cello sonata, but these were really interesting. They were a little different. I, I kind of, you know, I really kind of took to them. Yeah, yeah, they were intriguing. Well, the, and I, I liked was, all the rhythmic quality to it. When I first looked at this, when uh, you know you put this on the list, I said, "Well, I've heard all of these many times." You know, so yeah. that's and we know, will hear them many more times because yeah, they're just course. so great. I love them. So that's the th- that's the thing with this kind of repertoire. It has to either be better or different uh, mm. because you just don't want to hear the same or less of uh, you know a lesser quality yeah. uh, or you know not even quality but uh, you know something that catches and moves you uh, here so I think yeah the first part 
definitely different. Uh, maybe not mm -hmm. the best or in comparison, but uh, certainly worth hearing for the uniqueness of the interpretation. And then... And, uh, well, and the big selling point on this album, of course, is the great Martha Argerich playing, and right. she is indeed great in her performance. I, so it's worth hearing for that as well. Yeah. So... The, yeah, okay. So we're well on. recorded works, and now we're going to launch into outer space. With yes, we are different. from here. We are going into the stratosphere, into the contemporary era with Magnus Lindbergh. He's a, uh, geez, where is he from? He's, is he, I think he's Danish. Uh, Finnish. No, is he Danish? No, the orchestra is Finnish, but, uh, oh, he's yeah. Finnish. Yeah. He's Finnish too. Okay. Yeah. Oh, man, I'm so messed up. Yeah, Lindbergh. Ah, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, Mag Magnus Lindbergh, um, contemporary composer. And uh, he is indeed Finnish. I can't believe I said he was Danish. I'm going to be, I feel like an idiot now. <laughs> he is indeed Finnish. Okay. Because I don't think, because I think of like people like Rautavada and of course Sibelius and he doesn't really sound like either of them. So I don't know. Well, this is um, a right. memoriam of uh, Ludoslavsky, right? So Ludoslavsky, the first piece, yeah. Aura. Yeah. Okay. Now, first of all, let me just say... When I prepare for this uh, podcast, I'll use, if we're doing music like CPE Bach or like uh, Debussy, music that I know really, really well, I'll make a few notes about the recording, maybe two or three sentences, just so I can remember to say certain points. But then this came along, and I, I really should just publish the notes because they're <laughs> they almost make up an entire book. Yeah, because there's a, it's all new, and I, and you, you don't really know what to say about it. You're trying to make an impression for this very complicated music for the first time. Anyway, Magnus Lindbergh, or it's probably Magnus. Okay, I should say it the right way. Okay, um, the first work is called Aura. And uh, it's dedicated to uh, Vitold Lutoslavsky. Um, interestingly, and okay, before I get to that, um, I should mention there this work has been recorded before um, by Oliver Newson, a British uh, conductor. He did a recording of this uh, 21 years ago. We haven't heard this this piece on uh, on record for 21 years, I don't think. So this is only the second time I think it's ever been recorded. It's a pretty big work for a large orchestra. Now, he's, it's dedicated to Ludoslavsky, and uh, I imagine that there are people out there saying, well, who's, who's Ludoslavsky? I don't know who Lindbergh is. Now i got to know who Ludoslavsky is, too. Um, Ludoslavsky was a Polish composer, and he was, um, he was one of the people who, um, I think, sort of broke free of the, uh, the 20th century uh, serial, you know, fixation on serialism. He was kind of looking for a way to express himself. Uh, serialism was sort of... Um, becoming sort of mechanical you would just plug these kind of formulas in and uh your you know the music would sort of write itself and uh he wanted something a little different than that and he came up with oh let's just say various techniques a lot of them had to do with um you know having a large orchestra and that's using uh smaller elements in that orchestra schoenberg did that too but um it's actually early 20th century writers did but um yeah, actually, I don't know why I'm mentioning this. Okay, Lusovsky came up with these ideas of aleatory writing where you'd have this phrase to play, but you could play it any time you want. Uh, I don't think that happens in this piece. But um, Aura, is a, it's for a large orchestra. <laughs> and it's Boy, there are a lot of sounds in this work. Okay. Yes. Well, when <laughs> I read the notes, complicated. it said, this piece is dedicated in memoriam of the Polish composer Wotoldur. Uh, 
Ludislavski, who died partway through its composition, but not not from it. <laughs> died with. <laughs> died. Oh, I was listening to it when he died. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, it just Let's happened to. He just happened yeah. to uh, pass away uh, before it was uh, completed. Yeah. Now, that's pretty. It's pretty interesting, though, because uh, Lindbergh himself was kind of um, coming out of uh, a period of. Um, non-productivity he had um, gotten some tropical disease and it stopped him from composing for 18 months around mm. the year 1986 and uh, he had reached some sort of a dead end in his music and this was uh, one of the works that came after he resumed composing uh, it's the notes in the booklet say that it's a synthesis of his 1990s output. It was composed in 1993 to 1994. So, um, I mean, imagine he, he wrote a lot more music in the 1990s. So I don't see how that that's the case. And I want to say, first of all, this is a miraculous engineering uh, and conducting job on this um on this particular work because this is a huge orchestra with a lot of different sounds and all of them are clear it's amazing maybe mm -hmm. it's the um it's also the um orchestration as well you, you hear every detail in this it's yeah. amazing it's an amazing uh sort of performance recording and possibly uh orchestration as well i was really impressed by that right away i was like wow there's a lot of stuff coming at you in this Okay, another interesting thing about this piece before I talk about the music is it was um, a commission from Suntory Limited in Japan. All right. Give us that Suntory <laughs> So the Marks. first uh, orchestra, it was premiered in Tokyo by the Tokyo Symphony Orchestra right. under uh, Kazufumi Yamashita at Suntory Hall in June 1994. So a work written for um, a Japanese orchestra. How about that? And here we right. are. Uh, they must have been uh, quite an orchestra too because this is uh, must have a lot of discipline. This sounds like a really difficult piece to pull off. All right. It starts with um, some familiar um, Manus Lindbergh sounds um, that that stretch the sounds of the orchestra. We get those low reeds, and I, this is one of my favorite sounds in the orchestra, the low reed sound. Though We get the, the really vibrating reed sort of. I just love that. I don't know. You hear it in a lot of early 20th century music, um, the beginning of the Rite of Spring, things like that. Um also, um, sul ponticello on the string, so you get that really ghostly sort of string sound that they get from playing on the bridge. And then it, it just kind of blooms eventually into this full orchestra sound, but often um, sort of um, uh, contrasting with each other. It's odd. The, um, the uh, harmony is very modern. It's very uh, contemporary, let's say. It's of our time. But the way that the uh, composer sort of um, will have like these full um, orchestral sections um, juxtaposed with like say sections of the orchestra who get to play mm -hmm. uh, make this sound first of all like a, a bit like a concerto for orchestra which uh, Ludoslavsky also wrote by the way he wrote a concerto for orchestra as did Bartok Bartok wrote the uh, really famous one but it also reminded me just that uh, technique reminded me of the concerto grosso from the uh, Baroque era now this doesn't sound anything like a concerto no. grosso because uh, that had its motor rhythms and it kept going back to the it's the same theme when the tutti came when the whole orchestra played that's not the case here but just the whole way of sort of organizing the music like that kind of gave me something from the past to sort of um uh, hold on to as it all went by. This is a very complicated score, as I said. Um, 
I also have a note here, beautifully realized recording with percussive chimes, especially registering in feel-good places in your body. Okay, I got this really, ooh, it's a nice feeling from the chimes in the first movement. Okay. Uh, I, I really do enjoy when the uh, the full orchestra kind of dissipates and you're left with like a section, sort of like a chamber group playing. And you're in the midst of this big orchestra. It's kind of, uh, it's almost like it's zeroing in. On, on a group mm-hmm. just like a concerto for orchestra would. But this shouldn't be thought of as a concerto for orchestra because it's not really giving the um, orchestra players a chance to like show their ability, really. It's more everything is is aimed at the, uh, you know, the music. The, all the aims in this score are musical. They're not aimed at anybody getting a chance to show off or show their ability. Okay. So contrast is the name of the uh, game there. Okay. We move into the uh, second movement, which I didn't really write anything about, which is the slow movement. And uh, also very long. Okay. And uh, sort of sort of calm, I would say. Then we, the third movement is a sort of a scherzo. And uh, it has this kind of... Uh, Musical, I thought it was like a musical tornado. It kind of sounded like it was just this giant, like, momentum starting. And uh, we often hear, within that, we hear a lot of um, uh, themes or elements of the uh, score that we've heard in the previous two movements. I kind of thought about, the image it gave me when I first heard this was The Wizard of Oz, the tornado of The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy looks out the window and she sees, like, the house and the cows and, you know, in the tornado. Except that you're 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 in this tornado and you're hearing all these themes pass by that you've already heard in the uh, previous two movements. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it draws to this big climax. And the last movement is sort of an epilogue to that. It has a lot of rushing strings culminating in the calm chords at the end. I really liked this work a lot. Um, it's not a difficult listen, but it's it's enough that you're going to have to pay attention to it. No worries there. It'll grab your attention. It's it's too loud to for you not to pay attention to. But uh, if you really want to get into some um, uh, contemporary music, uh, you should really give this a listen. I thought it was pretty exciting. Yeah, it's interesting. You said con- contrast was the word I put in my notes on this one, yeah. too. Um, yeah, I enjoyed the... What I liked about it is the different timbres and textures yeah, and too. the way he plays off individual instruments and then whole sections. And then the contrast in the passages is interesting. You go from quiet strings to suddenly huge percussion and then, you know, interesting brass combinations and different kinds of things. Uh it is kind of garish in some places. It sort of <laughs> reminds you of, you know, some sort of weird extraterrestrial landscape or something yeah. like that. Uh, but it yeah, is the interesting. Audience, the, the audience must be reminded that the composer is still alive. So <laughs> that's yeah. why we have those. If you, uh, if you're up for, you know, something different and you're going to enjoy, you know, just tone out, you know, tones and textures and things. Uh, this has a lot of interesting, you know, coloring, you know, right. sort of like a, a free form, uh, painting i shouldn't say free form it's obviously well thought out and like that yeah. but the when you experience it for the first time and you don't know what's coming next you're going to be on like this roller coaster ride of different sort of sound colors and and things yeah. through it so it is very entertaining in that way yeah listen to the wonderful timbres and pay attention to the contrasts you know and just in loud soft in uh, large orchestra small orchestra 
in the rhythm changes. Uh, this this is all about contrast to me. Mm. Anyway, that's that's what I would say uh, about that. Um, and uh, it's very, you know, it's 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 just what I love about. Um, classical music as it's very contemporary it's very much him and no one else writes music like this uh, Lindbergh really is an, an original and yet it's tied to the past as well we kind of you know hear these echoes you know it, it sort of fits into the whole sort of tradition of classical music so uh, it's, it's got all these like really appealing qualities to me I liked it a lot it's a gigantic work too it's like 40 minutes long um, and yeah, anyway, there you go. There are two more works on this album, and they're both, I, as far as I know, unrecorded up in, until now. Uh, and they were both uh, shorter one-movement works. So that's the main, Aura is the major work on this recording. The second uh, work, a one-movement, 16-minute work, is called Related Rocks. And this is, um, interestingly enough, for two pianos and percussion, and we immediately think of bar talk when you, when you hear that, but uh, this doesn't sound anything like the bar talk. Uh, work okay. I mentioned Bartok because of his concerto for orchestra as well, and Aura kind of has like that quality right. to it, but doesn't sound anything like that. Uh, this particular work uh, doesn't sound anything like Bartok. The percussion is much more extensive. In fact, in the Bartok's very famous uh, sonata, you know, for two pianos and percussion, sonata for two pianos and percussion. Um, the pianos have the majority of the material. The percussion is just there for little colors, and it, it's they don't really play a huge role but here they do in uh, Lindbergh's work okay um, <laughs> there are a lot of percussion instrument there are also electronics on this and the electronic part was developed at ERCOM which is in Paris and in England it, it, what's, what's nice about this ERCOM means Institut de Recherche et Coordination Acoustique Musique Interestingly, that translates into English also with the initials ERCOM, which how convenient. Institute for the Research and Coordination in Acoustics slash Music. That works out really well. Yeah. Yeah, how about that? Okay. Now, the software that was used for the electronic part can morph one sound into another. And he's able to melt one sound into another. It's like a bell sound could melt into like this huge string orchestra sound. And one of the fun things about listening to this piece is like identifying uh, those elements when that's happening, when that metamorphosis of sound is occurring in the electronics. The electronic sounds are pretty uh, interesting. They uh, they have this kind of like silkiness to them, like you know this this sort of like a shiny alien you know, alien metal quality to them, something that would kind of, can, you know, blast through the universe and come to Earth without burning up kind of feeling. <laughs> I I get the impression that, uh, you know, all those UFOs they're talking about now, I mean, maybe they, they, they'd make a sound like this, I think, if you uh, were to approach them. So keep that a listen for, for you UFO uh, aficionados out there. Um, Your space okay. alloy hat is required to <laughs> yeah. listen to this one, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, this one yeah, is, uh, yeah. yeah, this this is actually easy to listen to because it's quite rhythmic. Yeah. So the pulse will drive you uh, through it uh, yeah. when you listen to this one. Yeah, rhythm kind of, especially in 20th century, 21st century now, uh, music is really the element that's kind of driving. So this, this more of a, Stravinsky kind of was the uh, 
proponent of that in his music. It was all about the rhythmic propulsion, as it is in jazz and rock and roll as well. Um, you know, rhythm really kind of is what attracts us. So when you have a, a classical work like this, you really know you're in the 20th or 21st century when you're hearing it. This, in this case, you would be in the 20th century. This was re- composed in 1997. By the way, uh, the three works on this disc are all live recordings. Uh, mm. You would never know it, though. No, it's a pretty impressive... Um, uh, achievement as far as the, uh, yeah, good, the sound goes, sound and it, especially considering the work aura and the the complicated textures in that, and everything is just so clean. It's such a great recording. This must have been some uh, concert to be at. I wish I was there. By the way, related rocks. The title comes from a geological exhibit that Lindbergh saw when he was composing the piece, and uh, he kind of liked the uh, the different textures of the rocks. And I think he kind of related that to what he was um, doing. It should be mentioned that uh, he was already composing the work when he came up with the title. Uh, he didn't think of rocks first and then <laughs> composed the work. Mm. So it's not about related rocks. He's just sort of uh, using that as a metaphor for uh, what he's uh, trying to do here. So think about it that way. Don't think about it as, oh, rocks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they, they make the sound of things very cool. Okay. Yeah, I enjoyed the electronics of this. I thought it was a pretty inventive. The last piece, Marea, which means um, Marea. It's actually Italian. I, I just the, the French are there. It's me Marea. It means tide, the tide. Um, you know, in Italian. And this is another one that was um, he was um writing this piece, and it um he didn't have a title for it, and then he um, let's see, what what exactly did he do, um. The ebbing and flowing wasn't associated with... This piece has a lot of like ebbing and flowing of textures in it. It wasn't associated with anything water-like when he was doing it. But he later realized that the tide would be a good metaphor for the work. I think he was in England looking at the English Channel or maybe France looking at the English Channel when he um, came up with the title. Okay, so it doesn't really have... To, it's not really about the tides, but the whole ebbing, flowing quality of the music in it. He's using that, the, the tide as a metaphor for what's happening in the music. Again, it's a little intellectual work you got to do there to uh, put this together. All right. Anyway, this one is, um, I read the notes for this. It says that the work is based on the Chacon principle. All right. Now, a Chacon, again, from the Baroque era. Now, I mentioned this again in the piece Aura. I said it reminded me of like like Concerto Grosso approach, even though it doesn't sound anything like a Concerto Grosso. Uh, Chacon is really a Baroque uh, form, and it's um, a repeating bass line. You'll have this bass pattern, and it'll keep repeating throughout the work, and above that, you have just these almost kaleidoscopic display of different uh, melodies, textures, chords, whatever you're going to put over that. Okay, so you can kind of think about it as um, that's the chicane is like the the crust on the pie that you're making, and then the pie could be like whatever you want it to be, you know. So it's um, that's that's what a chicane is like. Now this particular chicane is built on a twelve on twelve tone chords, so I couldn't identify the the baseline. It was it's like a twelve note chromatic <laughs> sort of theme. Yes. I I couldn't work it out what it was because what you want to the thing is, when you when you hear the word chacon, you 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 don't you can listen to it and say, oh, here's the chacon theme in the bass, but you don't need to. Um, the composer is telling you that it's there, so you just assume it's there and listen to what's on top of it, knowing intellectually that it's being held together by this repeating bass line. That's what I was kind of required to do here when I heard this piece, because I I couldn't figure out the the twelve tone bass line. 
the total <laughs> baseline I can, or where it was. It's, just, it's not really outlined or anything like that. But, you know, we'll take the composer's word for it that it's there. Um, I heard this piece twice and uh, maybe later I'll figure it out and I'll say, ah, there it is. And I'll um, have no one to talk to about it. All right. Anyway, this is um, a very nice performance. The layers of sound are all clearly audible. Again, a fantastic um, recording and performance. Um, okay, all thematic material is clearly shaped, so it stands out from the mass of instruments. Even though this is scored for a symphony, this is composed for a sinfonietta sized orchestra, a little smaller than a symphony orchestra, but it still sounds huge to me. I think the way the sound is all layered together. I thought this was a big orchestra when I heard it, and then I read about it. I said, "Oh, it's a it's a smaller orchestra." A sinfonietta, it, it just wouldn't be these masses of strings. Basically, is what it would come down to. Um, I was just this this I like the pretty ending this piece had. It kind of goes into this sort of like static sort of state, and then the piano and uh, these kind of reedy wind instruments end the piece in this really interesting timbre. This whole recording, all of these works have these really interesting timbres to them, and I found it pretty exciting to listen to. Great engineering. This is music that could easily sound like chaos and lesser hands. The uh. Finnish Radio Symphony Orchestra conducted by Hanu Lintu do a superb job go for it give this a listen I think you'll enjoy it and you can uh, tell your friends that you're listening to this uh, contemporary composer uh, and they won't know it they'll think they'll they'll kind of give you a few steps and they'll take a few steps back and think you're amazing <laughs> for knowing well, they'll this just stuff. leave you alone which is just as so, good they'll leave you alone which is kind of what I want these yeah, days these I days say. yeah uh, yeah we've been Talking about those kind of interactions with uh, strange people. <laughs> yeah, I don't Indeed. know. For me, this work is the Marea is a bit dense uh, and a little dark. Um, well, the it's overall, dense dark. It's got that twelve tone thing going too. The it's overall mood of his compositions to me is still kind of garish and a little bit unsettling. But yet I'm drawn it's not in. Relaxing, certainly no, not. I, I am drawn yeah. in by the the tonal qualities to it. Right. So. Um, yeah, it, it sort of uh, satisfies. Uh, I heard that cork pop there. Yeah, it satisfies my. Chris, uh, I think you hear poor too. I have a great microphone here. Here we go. It satisfies my sort of uh, taste for different colors, and uh, it's interesting. Um, but th there's also a huge spectrum in uh, frequency on this too. I started out. Uh, I. I actually have an aversion to headphones. I don't like to listen on headphones unless absolutely necessary. I have two right. sound systems, uh, and they're both pretty good. The, the smaller one excels sort of uh, in, um, how should I say, uh, sort of sweetness of sound. And then the larger one gives me the full tonal spectrum. So I started this at my uh, desk with the smaller system, because uh, <laughs> I, I was going to say <laughs> I was going to sit there and uh, type my uh, listening notes with it, but uh, right from the beginning of Aura, it it starts with such low frequencies that uh, you know these speakers weren't quite up to the full spectrum. So I had to come back and listen again, you know, with my big speakers because yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a full spectrum of uh, sounds and dynamics uh, going on here. So, um, you know, you could probably catch that with a good set of headphones, but I, I really need the, for me, I'm a speaker guy. Uh, so this one, you definitely want to have your uh, 
best speakers or headphones uh, ready to go to catch yeah, but- you know the full because there's a a, a really wide uh, spectrum of sound going on here that you need to hear. Yeah, I got to say, uh, Japanese uh, houses really aren't made for uh, contemporary music because uh, the sound tends to leak into the neighboring houses. And it's, it's really not all that much. Luckily for me, um, yeah, my neighbors are of an advanced, or something. <laughs> an advanced age. I don't think they can hear much anymore. Uh, so That's um, not a bad thing. That'll, that'll yeah. be us soon enough. Boy, yeah, let's well, hold yeah, on anyway. I kind of hope I keep my hearing to the I end. I get the you know, UV gonna... meters on the, the Luxman right up mm. there and um yeah they've never complained but i don't know well, if they're all alive anymore they, i guess they're still around those neighbors well maybe they like music and that, that's yeah. that's always good yeah. you know it's interesting <clears throat> as an aside uh you usually don't get hear about complaints from neighbors over classical music you know it's usually that <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> someone who listens to that kind of music <laughs> my favorite one. Inch, 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 yeah, inch. <laughs> yeah. Um, adult music doesn't usually tend to uh, annoy the neighbors as much, you know. So. I, I think it kind of intimidates them. They're like kind of afraid they'll look ignorant if they complain or something. You know, That's they right. just won't yeah. come over and do that. Although yeah. Japanese people, I don't think they really care. They kind of they just see it as something foreign. They they, they do like uh, Western music though. Oh, yeah, they like it. Yeah, they're big fans of like um, classical music. A lot of people play the piano here. It's like a yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, when the weather is nice, I have the windows open and uh, I'm working up here. I put on, uh, you know, if I've got something more breezy and easy, I play yeah. it. And uh, I'm sure that the neighbors can get a whiff of it and uh, they seem okay with it. So. I, I I have this theory that they, cause they, they I, if... um. If the if Western civilization falls, which which it, which it's looking more and more like can happen any day, it'll be like uh, you know when, when ancient Rome fell and all those Greek texts of the uh, the the Arab uh, countries in North Africa and stuff or the Middle East at the time preserved all these Greek writings and stuff, and then finally Europe got them back during the Renaissance. If that ever happens today in Europe, if we ever lose all of this wonderful culture that we have, I think uh, Japan and Korea will preserve them for us because they're the really Japanese big fans will- of it. We'll have the greater uh, physical collections of uh, classical and jazz music that uh, we can come back to. Just uh, looking at uh, people I know uh, who have big collections, and then what's available yeah. in the used stores. So, um, yeah, you know, if all of this streaming goes down and uh, there's nothing left, uh, just come to Japan. You can get all these. You can get everything on CD again. <laughs> it's all yeah, still I know. here. I think a lot of uh, yeah, collectors wind up going to you know, now with the internet you can kind of do this easily too it's like they, they'll go to like Japanese shops to yeah. look for rarities they often have them here somehow all these like uh, rare things are wound up in Japan because yeah. Japanese like me are great collectors okay they like yeah. to collect things and a lot of the uh, the Japanese editions of things are, were produced with more care and attention yeah, so they the sound better and uh, yeah. I have a lot of them, yeah, especially like uh, EMI, Japan EMI releases uh, right. that were done in the 90s. They had some really great engineers and uh, guys who worked yeah. on the remastering of things, and they sound so much better than the things that were just slapped yeah. onto disc and thrown out uh, in, in the States. So. Yeah, unfortunately, they also know that they sound better, so they are also more expensive. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes they are, yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, I've gotten yeah. a lot of them for just a few hundred yen. Uh, it's a couple yeah. dollars, and uh, they're out there. So, 
Oh, you got used ones then. Yeah, yeah, used ones. That's yeah, good. Sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. So. Okay. There we go. It's been a happy week for me in classical music, yeah, classical I have to music. say. Interesting combination of stuff. Uh, yeah. It, was all, it all made me. Uh, time periods covered. Me up to, yeah. I was intrigued. I felt good. So the uh, onto jazz this week, uh, the theme is sax. Can never it get is. enough sax. We all need yeah. more sax. You need some sax. Sax yeah. is good for you. Before we start this, I want to say something. In the middle of the week, you, Russ and I were talking about possible titles for this episode. And we had the three sax records. We came up with a load of like sax slash sex jokes. Okay, because, uh, you know, I just put the word sax in where you would put sex. We came up with about six or seven of them. And I just want to tell the audience right now, we intend to use every one of them eventually. Eventually, <laughs> all yeah. going into a file. So if you... If you if you think we're childish, you are correct. We are going to use all of these titles eventually. Well, you may think we are childish, but when we put provocative titles, uh, they get more downloads. Uh, whether people actually listen through to the end of the <laughs> episode true. or not, I have no idea. We have no we have measuring that uh, sort of metric. But uh, yeah, w- what was our uh, get a sax pack with our Renaissance workout? Yeah, <laughs> that was the more <laughs> downloaded. But that one that was episodes. pretty neat, I have to yes. say. Yeah, it was good. Uh, so this one will be because uh, we said the word Renaissance workout is like a sexual thing in the episode. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, you can expect a similar sort of uh, reference with this title, whichever one we decide on. Yeah, we haven't decided on which one to use yet, but uh, yeah. oh boy, that's, it's it's just a uh, cornucopia of bad puns this week. You're going to yeah. love it. Anyway, <laughs> Whatever we come up with. All of the sacks <laughs> that we'll be having this week will be of the tenor variety. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, uh, you know, hey. And I, I just had a really tenor. long sax session this week because I heard all three of these albums like one after the other on the same all day. Right. And I have to say it was really interesting, an interesting kind of contrast between the sounds of these three players. That's I really right. enjoyed that. There's mm-hmm. a lot of variety here. And uh, two of the recordings are live recordings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, let's see. I'm going to I'm gonna put the uh, live ones as the uh, sandwich bread here. And we'll put the studio one in the middle. And so we'll start off with Straight Off, uh, which is by Martin Jacobson on the Steeplechase label. And uh, Martin Jacobson uh, is a Danish-born tenor saxophonist who has been based in Paris uh, since uh, about 1995. But he tours a lot, and uh, he divides his time a lot in Italy and uh, also Asia in recent years. Uh, He's, uh, from what I can gather, uh, mainly self-taught, uh, but uh, to a very high level of proficiency. And uh, this straight off as the title uh, is uh, sort of descriptive of the kind of jazz we have here, which is very much straight ahead jazz. And um, he's got a kind of uh, international group of players with him on uh, piano, Hiroshi Murayama. Uh, from Japan, and uh, I'm not sure quite how to say this name. Is it uh, Giles Gills Naturel on bass? I guess it would be Giles if it's G-I-L-E-S, Giles. G- double L, though. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I'm not Gilles, sure. maybe. Is he French? Gilles, Gilles Naturel, uh, maybe a Frenchman, know. on bass. Okay. Uh, Mark Taylor, that's a very uh, Anglophone type of name, on drums. And uh, this uh, recording uh, comes on the heels with the same personnel, I believe, of a 
live recording in Japan, but this one was recorded uh, in France. He seems to have a backlog of these uh, live recordings. Uh, very good sonics on this for a live recording. Uh, sounds, you know, just as good as a studio recording, in my opinion. Uh, the sound quality is really good. And we've got mostly a uh, kind of straight ahead selection of tunes, beginning with uh, standard How Little We Know. Uh, and this one is a uh, breezy standard, nice rhythm section opening. And uh, Jacobson comes in on the melody, and you get a taste of his tone, which is a very uh, shiny and rich tenor tone. Uh, yes, it's a pleasing tone he gets on his on the sax. Uh, the groove changes uh, to a harder swing when his solo kicks in, and he bounces along really nicely uh, through several choruses, which is one of the highlights of this album. As a live date, uh, the players get to really stretch out here. Uh, there's no time constraints on the playing, and so you, uh, the solos get really developed here. Um, and you get a sense that he's a really good uh, swing player here as he bounces through uh, several choruses really nicely. And then we get uh, Murayama coming in with a piano solo. And this is, uh, he, he really punctuates his solo with chord stabs here, and uh, he really has a long time to build a great solo over a lot of choruses. And uh, as comes up through this recording, Moriyama is one of the players who likes to throw in uh, quotations. And, uh, and jazz fans will know what this is, but if, if you're not uh, a listener of jazz frequently, uh, one thing that some jazz players will do is they will quote bits of a melody from another song and insert it into another song when there's a similar chord progression cadence or they'll make it fit uh, just when they think the time is uh, appropriate. And Muriyama does this throughout the recording and in here he inserts a little bit of the melody of the tune, uh, If You Could See Me Now. Uh, and uh, you get a Very sense intellectually of... satisfying when you're able to identify the tunes, by the <laughs> yeah. way. Yeah, that, I, uh, I got all of them on the first try and one was just sticking in my mind. I couldn't think of what it was, but it came to me on a further listening. And he has a really uh, staccato kind of left hand that stands out, but it helps add the excitement. Um, the next tune is called Headway. This is a minor blues that has some interesting uh, chords and a stop time uh, behind the melody. And Moriyama uh, on piano takes the first solo. He keeps it really bluesy and relaxed at the start, and then he adds some interesting rhythms and two-hand figures, and uh, then he gets kind of funky with a kind of uh, Bobby Timmons-like trills, uh, if you uh, know Bobby Timmons' style, and a crashing end. It's a really great solo. And then the piano and drums drop out for a bit when Jacobson starts his solo softly, and he builds it up as the uh, piano and drums come back in and add some kind of false fingering for fun as he goes through a lot of creative variations over many, many choruses. And we, there's a shorter bass solo with some light drum fills in between and then back to the melody. Uh, third track, another jazz standard here, Polka Dots and Moonbeams, gets the uh, typical slow ballad treatment. And Jacobson shows a uh, nice warm lower register on the melody here. Very nice phrasing in his solo. He leaves a lot of space between his lines, uh, which is nice. And uh, then Murayama comes in with a solo, a lot of simple melodic lines here in the first part of his solo. And then uh, 
his uh, you'll notice here his rhythmic style is to play slightly uh, behind the beat, uh, which is really stands out here. And then he adds some real uh, Bill Evans style figures near the end. Anyone who's <laughs> listens to Bill Evans, you'll pick up on these. He he lifts them really directly uh, here, mm. almost as uh, an ode to him. And uh, when the melody comes back in. Uh, on the bridge, uh, the drums switch to a samba beat, which is kind of interesting, and uh, until the verse comes around, and then it's back to the slow swing, and uh, Jacobson takes kind of a gentle sax uh, cadenza at the end to uh, finish things off. On track four, uh, we've got Groovy Samba, which is uh, a Cannonball Adderley composition from his album, uh, Cannonball's Bossa Nova. And Jacobson reworks the melody a bit. It's still identifiable, but he's uh, customized it a bit. His uh, solo is really rhythmic over the bossa rhythms section. And then uh, Murayama's piano solo introduces some really nice uh, clear hand right-hand staccato notes that are mixed into his fluid lines. And then he adds some really cool Latin-y two-handed lines, bluesy figures, and then some rhythmic hammering. It's a really inventive and uh, fun uh, piano solo on here. And uh, yeah, I, I really came to enjoy this uh, Muriyama's piano play. I'd never heard of him before, but uh, he's really distinctive and uh, an excellent player. Yeah, I thought so too, by the way. I just wanted to put that in there he he grabbed my ear yeah. there's a lot of great like grooves on this record too mm-hmm. they're kind of you know not not necessarily funky but there's it's highly rhythmic playing and the yeah. uh it it affects the uh shaping of the um the melodies and the playing and stuff and it made it really enjoyable for me okay. yeah it's, it's alive it's great uh great energy um the next tune uh west coast blues and this is uh west montgomery tune uh really swinging uh tune that has some interesting chord changes in it Moriyama takes the first solo on piano here. He swings nicely uh, in mixing in a lot of uh, high register lines and bluesy figures. Builds a nice uh, climax with some percussive chord figures. Um, and Jacobson comes in. He starts out really smoothly, builds it gradually, and he gets some nice double time lines in. Uh, he takes a lot of choruses, but he never runs out of ideas, and he connects it smoothly right back to the melody. Uh, a really good development uh, uh, showing a mature soloing sense. Then we get the title track, which is uh, straight off. It's a swinging minor tune. It sounds sort of like a Coltrane uh, tune. Uh, I'm not sure if it's original or not. There's not really any notes available here. Uh, Jacobson takes the melody into a solo. Then he really surfs the wandering changes, uh, coming up with lots of creative phrases uh, through here. Uh, then Murayama comes in. He's got a really intense hard bop solo, lots of cascades, and he throws in another quote uh, from uh, the standard, If I Should Lose You. Uh, he fits that in there. And then the piano and sax trade uh, phrases before returning to the melody. Uh, after that, a tune called Nightfall. It's another slow ballad. And here Jacobson shows a more smooth upper register on uh, the melody and a really smooth solo. And uh, Moriyama adds a kind of a tasty, delicate solo on this one, too. And uh, there's a kind of extended chord ending here uh, for Jacobson to add some final improvisations over. And uh, the final tune is called uh, The End of a Love Affair, uh, which has been recorded by a lot of uh, vocalists uh, over the years. This starts off with a drum lead-in 
and then it's off to a really fast swing. And Jacobson is off to a furious pace uh, from the solo break with lots of double time figures. There's uh, lots of choruses here, and he's really <laughs> digging into the low register too, uh, showing a, a little bit a different style. And Muriyama comes in, and he keeps up the pace with a lot of fast lines in his solo and rhythms that drive things along. And here he throws in uh, a couple uh, quotes from uh, Fascinating Rhythm. Uh, ah, and gets, yeah, and he gets those mm. uh, in with the key change too that he works into that too. Uh, and then Jacobson comes back uh, in to trade phrases with the drums uh, before heading back to the melody. Uh, so as the title hints at, uh, this is a recording of straight ahead jazz uh, with not too many surprises in content, but uh, the sound quality is excellent for a live recording. And the nice feature is there's a lot of room for solos. There's, these guys uh, take a lot of choruses that you're not going to get on a studio date. And then uh, that allows them to show what they can do as far as, you know, not just improvising, but developing an arc of uh, composing something in their solos. And it really shows off uh, not only, you know, Jacobson's facility, maturity as an improviser, but uh, Murayama really shines here too. Um, and uh, really excellent playing overall and uh, really well stylized and uh, exciting performance. Uh, so really nice uh, live recording by the All right. Danish. Yeah, I, um, this, this was my favorite of the three jazz albums. Oh, okay. this way. I just like the whole lively playing, the uh, just the whole rhythm, rhythmic strength of it. You know, it just kind of was, was really uplifting and kind of. Yeah, I, 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 well, this was the uh, the second one I heard, by the way, because I oh, listened okay. to, as I said, I listened to them all in order, and I heard them more than once too, but the first time, and yeah, this one really uh, picked me up. I, I was uh, struck by his uh, sound, not the breathy sound we were talking about last week, but a, right. but a really, really pretty. Um, it's a rich, warm, uh, yeah, kind of glowing yeah. sound. Um, glowing is a good word. Yeah, I like that. There's something swinging in Denmark. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but. Uh, those good. Danish guys, I don't see. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I was, kind of, so I was thinking Lindbergh was Danish because I just wanted him because I like what the <laughs> Danes do. But I like Finnish. I like Finnish composers a lot too. So there you go. Yeah. I don't know much about Finnish jazz though. I wonder if there's any. I don't know. Yeah, but there's certainly a lot of good Danish stuff. Jeez, we've been uh, getting a yeah. lot of it. Well, let's not get uh, confused. We're in Danish now. Yeah, <laughs> Danish mode sounds now. good on my Dolly speakers for sure. Yeah. Oh, Dolly speakers. I'm going to get a pair of those. You should get some. I got two pairs. I absolutely will. <laughs> I absolutely will. Bother the neighbors. That's, I, maybe they'll just kind of really be happy because they'll be such good sound, you know? Okay. Everyone will love you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, what do you got next there? Second, we've got a happy destination. That's the title by uh, Rich Perry on the Steeplechase ah. label. And uh, another tenor saxophonist, a native of Ohio, but uh, he's been living and performing in New York City since the mid-70s. Uh, he's a former member of the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Orchestra, uh, one of the greater jazz uh, groups, uh, big band. And uh, that band's kind of morphed uh, into something uh, in the modern day, I think called the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, which he's still a key member of. And they still play at the Village Vanguard in New York. Uh, and uh, they tour. Over the years, uh, Perry's also played with a lot of other uh, big figures in jazz, uh, including uh, Chet Baker, Paul Blay, Lee Konitz, Rufus Reed, uh, George Mraz, Billy Hart, and others. He's recorded 23 albums as a leader, 
And uh, this is his second album of all originally composed tunes. Um, however, his uh, compositions, they have a really generally improvis improvisational character. So uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a struggle to describe his tunes and what's going on here, although they're kind of uh, interesting if you're into a more freer jazz element. So on this date, we've got... Uh, Rich Perry on tenor sax, uh, Gary Fossace on piano, Jay Anderson on bass, and John Riley on drums. Um, the first tune is called uh, Iron Buddha Part One. <laughs> it, it kind of made me think of Iron Butterfly for some yeah. reason. <laughs> um, Iron Buddha, title. too. It's kind of a, you got that spiritual element in there. It just sounded yeah. kind of hard. I don't know. And it, in fact, it had kind of like a hard kind yeah. of rhythm to it, you know, it was kind of. These are um, really hard for me to uh, describe what I what you hear here because it's yeah uh, it is I was a, thinking the same thing yeah, also but part I'll, one by the way Iron Buddha part one, part yeah. one. so more I'll do my best but this is kind of a very free swinging modern mysterious chromatic melody uh, but on everything and here as well Perry shows that he has a very fluid uh, tone. Uh, the piano uh, comes in after his statement with some complex rhythmic and harmonic figures in a solo that then fades into a bass solo. And that fades again in the drums pick up the beat again and Perry's back with the kind of uh, melody statement. Uh, so this is a very kind of uh, structured uh, opening tune. Uh, the second tune here is called uh, Everything Hurts. It's <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> an interesting title again. This is a funky beat tune. It's got a real bluesy feel. Perry takes the first solo and he plays around with the uh, melody figure uh, rhythmically. And he mixes kind of bluesy ideas with reaching phrases. Uh, the piano solo that follows is percussive and rhythmic and settles into the groove uh, that the drums and bass are doing and explore some more harmonic ideas also outside of the chords with uh, funky phrases. Uh, no, number nothing three, painful about that track. Eh? No, no, it's really, really enjoyable. The rhythmic yeah. one. Uh, Recoleta, and this is kind of a slow minor lament. It's got a slinky melody to a Latin beat and uh, Perry plays relaxed uh, with a lyrical tone and he really explores the melancholy possibilities uh, implied in the melody here. Uh, Versace's piano solo is really pensive and a bit more rhythmic. It, and it seems like uh, there's a dialogue going on here. The, the sax is longing for something. And I felt like the piano is like explaining to the sax why that just can't be. <laughs> you may want this, but no, you can't have it. And then the yeah. sax comes back to return that longing kind of uh, melody. Yeah. Uh, yeah, kind of interesting uh, emotions I picked up from this one. Mm. Uh, four is called uh, Luft, L-U-F-T. Uh, this yeah. is some light cymbals and bass harmonics that start out in a mysterious way. Uh, the sax comes in with a very bendy descending line and the piano adds tinkles behind it. Um, a beat finally appears, and then the piano solos sparsely, uh, recalling the descending line and kind of embellishing on it. Then Perry comes back in on sax for some slow uh, exploration with his uh, warm tone. This one really stood out for me for its oddness, by the way. <laughs> <Very> odd, <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. It's, it's a, it was a complete like change of uh, like tempo mm -hmm. and feel and everything. It, it is kind of, luft means like air, and it is kind of airy. Yeah, it's you know? airy. 
Um, and uh, five is uh, Rebellion Dogs, D-A-W-A-G-S. Yeah. And this is a medium swing to a very freeform melody. And Perry takes it into a solo right away. He's more aggressive here. There's uh, faster lines and harmonic ventures. Uh, the piano picks up on his uh, final solo idea and uses it to create this kind of uh, undulating improvisation in both hands. And then the sax comes back in and trades uh, chromatic lines with the piano. Uh, this followed by Iron Buddha Part 2. <laughs> and, uh, this We're one, waiting for this. Yeah. <laughs> so this part one, part two comes here. It's got a mysterious piano opening, and then the sax joins in for some phrases uh, with the bass is in a uh, kind of free rhythm. Then the bass takes over and explores for a while uh, before the sax comes back in. And then there's more of a free-form exploration from the uh, piano. And finally, the sax comes in for another uh, last melody statement. Uh, seven... Uh, for our vegan friends, this is called plant-based. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a slow, rocky beat uh, with a kind of pentatonic melody figure that sets the groove here. Uh, Perry takes it in the lower register for some honks uh, here, and then he uh, launches into some real harmonic explorations. And then uh, the piano adds a lot of like rhythmic jabs and things before a solo that starts with some syncopated phrases, and then he ties it together into long runs and turns out some really kind of hypnotic two-handed figures. Then uh, Perry comes back and uh, builds tension with some intense phrases, and then things slow and mellow again, and Perry kind of decides on some low tones with harmonics for the ending. I think there's some pork hidden in that work, though. It's called plant-based, but uh, <laughs> they snuck some, uh, some meat in there. Could be some pork, yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. some Slim Jims chopped up in there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if that's really meat, I don't know. Oh, my God. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, eight is called uh, Happy Destination, or Destiny, part one. Uh, this starts out with some kind of tinkling percussion between, behind a really happy kind of free-flowing sax motif. Uh, it's got a happy kind of, you know, major character to it and the piano comes in with some rolling figures kind of like a streaming water that's what i sort of thought but then the the stream sort of dries up into a drip and then the bass kind of meanders from there um then the piano comes in with a real development of a solo and then perry comes back to explore uh, things some more and uh that leads into happy destiny part two and this one has a more steady beat with some interesting accents on uh, this version of it. And Perry states the melody more assertively before the piano explores around it harmonically. And then we get a more free solo from Perry, and he finds some really pretty notes, and also he uh, plays some kind of harmonics on uh, the more strident phrases, and then he brings it to a quiet close. And uh, then we get maybe the most uh, kind of... Uh, standard sounding of uh, the compositions which is called a uh, long dark spring mm -hmm. and this one starts with a repeating sequence of piano figures that get developed more and more on each repeat and then uh, perry joins in with a very mournful melody uh, and he gets some more harmonics uh, on the sax in some places and the piano takes over for a while uh, before perry is back uh, with the sad melody kind of to close it out so 
you get the feeling uh, on these rather than compositions uh, they're sort of free compositional ideas that are a base for exploration uh, on this set and uh, you know it if you're into more standard jazz this might not be to your liking but if you want to escape sort of jazz conventions of uh, you know standard tunes and cliches that uh, often come up in improvising you know this is uh, a pretty fresh kind of sound uh, that will take you into uh, exploration uh, here uh, you know Perry has this very sweet uh, lyrical sound but put with this kind of uh, open and challenging material, it's sort of a nice uh, balance because uh, he always sounds really, uh, uh, you know, even pretty, I would say, is the, the, the sound that he has of tone and the way he phrases uh, connects things well. Uh, Versace seems to be a good pianist for this kind of work because he seems to be comfortable in these sort of uh, open structures and yet he brings some interesting you know, new kinds of phrasing and connections uh, in that. Um, so I was, I was interested. Uh, it's something, it's not really free jazz. It's um, based on all of these ideas, but it does uh, explore a lot and uh, go out of the normal kind of realm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it could be a happy destination for you. Yeah. It's, it's not challenging as much as it's like unusual. It's sort of a, something a little different I, this, that's always a good thing I feel like um, you know if you, if you get something that's a little different than what you normally hear it kind of it's good for your brain I, I actually found this enjoyable though cause I think his playing makes it all it all work it's appealing enough you know that you're kind of like you know sold on you know what's happening here it's just different than what I'm used to I liked it. I did like it though yeah if you if you can, ha if you're in the mood to focus, uh, you'll definitely be able to follow what he's doing. Um, you know, there are yeah. he, he, you know, he states sort of you, you get the idea of where the composition is coming from, what it's the idea that it's based on uh, is stated, and then it's developed upon, and you know, the other players add to it. So yeah, it's not that far out there, and uh, I, I think it's really enjoyable, uh, creative, and original kind of thing it doesn't sound like uh anything else really it's uh it's doing yeah. something new with these ideas so basically if you listen to this in Lindbergh in the same day i mean you might uh become a buddha or something you know yeah an iron one <laughs> yeah just stay out yeah, of the way so buddha, you don't rust right, yeah. don't get rusty yeah, on your you buddha. won't you won't walk away the same person yeah. you came in as you know <laughs> and then yeah uh Another completely different uh, sexual experience for the yeah. last recording. We've got uh, a recording called Straight Guns. And this is on the AMM level label with uh, the Modern Jazz Trio. Uh, and uh, so this is uh, featuring the American saxophonist Jerry Bergonzi. Uh, yeah, well... A name that's familiar, really. Yeah, who uh, has a long lineage going back almost uh, 50 years ago with the Dave Brubeck Quartet. Uh, what different days those were. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, he's played around the world since then. And, uh, you know, basically, if you want to take a sax player who can go back to uh, Coltrane to uh, modern times and has been through all of the things there... Uh, Bergonzi is uh, high on the list and he's recorded uh, 
on uh, different labels, including Blue Note and Atlantic Records. And now, uh, you know, he's up, getting up there. He's uh, 72 years old. Uh, however, his uh, passion and, uh, you know, oomph has not uh, diminished at all. He sounds mm -hmm. really energetic and uh, forceful here. And he uh, joins the, uh, well, actually rejoins the modern jazz trio uh, here, uh, their sixth album together. And the Modern Jazz Trio is uh, a Danish supergroup, more Danish. We keep getting all these, uh, uh, going back to uh, Danish things here. Yeah, what's going on there in Denmark anyway? There's some uh, yeah, good, good, uh, good music good coming jazz. out of there. There's even good yeah. classical music coming out of Denmark as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, so this group has uh, toured a lot internationally uh, in collaboration with other uh great artists, including uh, another great saxman, uh, Dave Liebman, uh, trumpeter Tim Hagens, uh, George Garzon, and uh, they've also uh, captured uh, their last live at the Dexter Jazz Club, and uh, that also has some uh, Borgonzi on it, and um, some other tunes here. Now, this recording on the notes is, uh, it's not specified where the uh, date is is uh of the recording is so i don't know but uh so it's bergonzi on tenor sax uh and the modern jazz trio is Cole winter on piano johnny aman on bass and anders mogensen on drums and uh it's a short recording really there's only uh, six tracks and some of the tunes are uh, rather short but uh, it's very spicy uh, and satisfying in the material. So it begins with a Bergonzi original called I See You. And uh, this is a relaxed swing tune. And right away you'll get a taste if you don't know Bergonzi's playing. Uh, this is a, a tone that's very different from the two previous saxophone players. He's got a yeah. huge, big, and edgy sound. Mm. Uh, here he plays the melody and then uh, improvises a bit before coming right back to the melody. And this is just a short opener tune uh, that's a sax feature. It's all sax, and uh, it's over almost as uh, soon as it starts. Uh, and that goes into track two, which is called extra extra that's uh, xtra uh twice <laughs> and if you wonder what that means if you can count you'll figure it out right away because this is a blues with interesting harmonies but uh if you know the blues form uh the standard blues is 12 bars uh but when you listen to this you're going to hear 14 bars instead yeah. of 12 hence extra extra twice uh that's the two extra measures of music uh here and so uh Bergonzi comes in and then he solos really hard and bluesy he's really on fire for uh 72 years old uh he's really <laughs> playing it out there and then uh here we're going to get a taste of this uh, modern jazz trio, especially the uh, pianist Winter. This guy's a really excellent pianist. Um, he takes a well-punctuated solo. There's some really forceful uh, left-hand uh, accompaniment, some right-hand rolling in the solo, and he's really digging in here. Uh, Borgonzi comes back in for the head. Uh, this is another short one, but uh, they leave some crowd noise and there's some enthusiastic shouting uh, on the fade out. <laughs> so you can tell the crowd was really into this. Mm. Uh, then we get uh, a couple of standards coming up next. We've got all of you, Cole Porter to him. The sax intro is really biting, uh, 
but uh, kind of a cool uh, tone here. Uh, his articulation on the tone in the melody is really unique. He goes from biting to like contrasting breathy runs uh, uh, in his playing. And then uh, Winter comes in with another rhythmic solo, really agile running lines. And uh, as the piano solo gets going, the drums really work up this huge backbeat, <laughs> uh, <laughs> driving him along on here. You know, it's a Cole Porterton, but he's really pounding it out. Uh, and Bergonzi comes back in uh, for a solo. He gets some upper register exploration here, and he goes down low, too. He's firing off all these rapid phrases. Uh, and then he, some of the uh, figures in there are kind of like Pharaoh Sander-esque kind of yeah. uh, figures in here. And then the tune mellows out for a bass solo. And then uh, Bergonzi comes back uh, for the melody and uh, he gets intense again. And then he ends it kind of mellow. And uh, as we heard in the last recording, uh, kind of uh, quotations, uh, he just hints at the melody of it might as well be spring here uh, and then brings the tune to a close. Hmm. Followed by uh, another standard, uh, Body and Soul by Johnny yeah. Green. Uh it gets the slow ballad treatment as usual here. And Bergonzi plays the melody. And uh, he shows here some kind of upper register uh, Coltrane-like tones uh, in here. And uh, then uh, we get a winter piano solo showing a really nice command of touch. Uh, you, you get a sense, you know, some pianists just have that uh, sense of touch that, uh, you know, communicates something different and, and winter has it here also with a nice relaxed swing uh bergonzi comes in with a solo it's got some interesting harmonic figures just enough space between uh what he's doing and some really tart articulation and then uh aman takes a relaxed bass solo before they return to the melody and then at the end uh bergonzi takes a cadenza and he explores the harmony and he finds some further new ideas uh, to finish this one out nicely. And then we go to uh, two Bergonzi Originals. Uh, five is called uh, Ayaz. The drums get this one going, uh, building on the tension until the piano comes in. And uh, this is a very Coltrane-esque kind of uh, tune. Uh, it established, the piano comes in establishing the kind of modal pattern uh, in a Coltrane kind of thing. And Bergonzi comes in and he really honks out on the uh, syncopated melody on top of that. And then the other thing that's nice about this tune, it has that exciting switch between straight beat and swinging sections uh, that, you know, started in like the hard bop uh, kind of era with Art yeah, Blakey. Actually, I, I wish we were on video because uh, Russ is now demonstrating <laughs> what demonstrating that would look like that, if yeah. the drummer was, you know, <laughs> were doing it. <laughs> it's just that it's that switch when one of these tunes goes from the and it hits that swing and then you know it's it's you feel like something breaks loose and so you get that kind of here and then he continues kind of into an intense solo. And it explores the tensions, you know, implied in the contrasting moods. Uh, then the piano drops out kind of midway in Bergonzi's solo. And then he's really flying free. You know, so like he, he can do whatever he wants harmonically. Uh, and he's he's got that biting tone. It's it's really perfect for this style, It that kind of aggressive playing. Um, and then the piano comes back and uh, for a, a solo. And he keeps the energy that Bergonzi 
had in his sax solo here. Lots of fast lines over the modes, really percussive left-hand chords. And then uh, Bergonzi comes back in. He's still really wound up, and he adds some uh, cool squawks. And then, uh, you know, if you know uh, Coltrane's Love Supreme, it, he, he implies some of those uh, kind of... Uh, phrases there here and uh you'll hear that and then the crowd really loves it you'll hear them uh you know in the background here the drums take a short solo uh and the piano comes back in on the chords to reintroduce reintroduce the melody and um then when Bergonzi comes back he still has more ideas in the tank <laughs> and he throws out and he improvises right to the end and brings it to a soft close and uh this is a short album on whole the final tune is only track six another Bergonzi original called don't look back uh we got a kind of mid-tempo even beat Bergonzi original this is kind of an airy melody and chords open sounding and he goes into a short solo a lot of double time figures then uh, winter takes a short but interesting piano solo and he finds some kind of pleasant surprises in the chord possibilities and uh, Bergonzi comes back with the melody, and this one ends in less than uh, three and a half minutes. Uh, so mm. we got some short kind of bookends on this, but it sounded like uh, it was a really fun live date. Uh, great sound quality for a live recording, and you get a you know a taste of a real sax master here. He's absorbed the tradition uh, of modern sax from Coltrane uh, to the modern day, but he still has you know his own identifiable original tone and style. At uh, 72, he hasn't lost any chops or passion. Uh, his energy comes through on all the tracks. Uh, the band has good energy too, this uh, modern jazz trio, especially Winter's piano playing. Uh, really excellent, uh, inventive, uh, forceful, but with a really nice sense of touch. Uh, the program's short, and also some of the tunes are short, but I like the mix. Uh, is a sandwich of Bergonzi's original, and then we got a couple of standards uh, in the middle. So if you like kind of intense sax playing, really passionate, uh, forceful, and uh, a more rugged tone, uh, this recording will be a lot of fun for you. So uh, definitely check it out. You know, there's six tracks on, but I thought this was longer than because some of them, some of these um, um, tracks are pretty long so yeah. it, it kind of came across as a you know full-length album it would yeah, seem yeah. short to me there's a lot of there's a lot of extended soloing on it uh the, the name of the album is straight gons it's a good a uh, good title he's really the centerpiece on this and oh, the yeah, panel yeah. does get some good uh you know moments like you said but uh, it's really about him and he uh yeah, he 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 brings it. He's quite he's 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 quite good. It's good to hear all these um, septuagenarian musicians. We should, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, but uh, doing you know really really bringing it. You know, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, he uh, has this you know, huge personality on the sax that comes through that huge sound. And uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, Pharaoh Sanders. It kind of it's not as wild as like Pharaoh Sanders, but Pharaoh Sanders had a big sound. He still does. Yeah. Um. But uh, you know, even though he's like in advanced years now, and yeah, Bergonzi is is like that. He has this huge sound as well. Very just presence that just fills the uh, fills your ears when you hear it, and probably the stage when he's on it. Yeah, I like yeah. his, you know, he has that sound and then he has this kind of um, biting attack yeah. that um, 
not to say that he can't play legato and and things, but generally he um he's pretty aggressive as he, a player. He, he he's, is, gonna... he's aggressive uh, and he has this huge energy, and uh, it hasn't you know diminished at all. Uh, in, in you just feel like he's bursting to play lines whenever he comes in on a solo. So, I mm. mean, uh, you know, he hasn't mellowed out as uh, he's advanced in years, and uh, it's just, it's exciting, yeah, and so. Uh, it's also exciting to hear that people reach this age and are still like playing like that at this very high level and very mm -hmm. appealing level as well, an energetic level. It kind of gives you sort of a strength to carry on, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's really I find things like that really encouraging. We have uh, him, Martha Argerich, and you know we heard this week Daniel Barenboim. I think of people like Pharaoh Sanders, and you know we talked about Charles Lloyd earlier in the year. Yeah. You know. 70s, and, uh, 80s, still going. And even, the, even the 90s, uh, Ahmad Jamal is still going. Still going on, yeah. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So, All right, and that, that's the end of a very enjoyable week of music, I think. Good week of music. Um, yeah. You've got, uh, you know, your full sexual experience here. Uh, yeah, I different... encourage listeners to listen to every, all six albums that we talked about. Really. listen to all these. They're, they're all, really good. Really, yeah. And I have to say... Um, Actually, I was lucky to find all of these because uh, last two weeks have been a bit sparse for new releases in the jazz mm. realm. Oh, there are things out there, but you know, things that I really wanted to talk about, I couldn't find any. And then I saw uh, these, and I thought, you know, I had two, and I thought, well, there got to be another, another sax uh, one. And then I saw that, and when I listened to all of them, I said, oh, this is great because they all, it's it's three tenor sax albums, and they're all very very different, uh, unique in character, um, you know, which, you know, that should be the way jazz is, uh, you know, when we find a, a player, even on the same instrument, should have a, a different uh, tone, a different approach, a different uh, repertoire, and all of these are, you know, like that. But I have to say, uh, I don't know, the next wave must be coming because I've already got uh, what I want to talk about for next week. And uh, it's going to be really good. Next week, we've got a piano release we've both been waiting for that's yeah. out. Um, a piano player mm. we're really interested in. And that's going to be good. And I'm interested to hear this. I haven't heard this yet, so yeah. I'm kind of interested. And in surprisingly, I've got two jazz vocal albums that are just out this week. And you're really going to like both of them, Mike. And uh, I'm, I'm interested in this because I like jazz vocals a lot. And we haven't yeah. talked about that enough on well, this uh, podcast. And the reason is because I'm extremely picky with vocalists. Yeah, um, I've noticed I'm, that about I'm, you, actually. I'm very critical. There's very <laughs> few. Most of the ones that the critics like, I can't stand. Um, you know, so I'm very picky. Uh, my favorite jazz vocalists, I guess I would say, uh, well, currently would be Catherine Russell. Catherine Russell, I like do, her a lot too. Do no wrong because yeah. she always makes me feel good, and yeah. uh, I like Diane Reeves a lot, uh, but yeah. she hasn't recorded a lot in recent times. But a lot of the other ones that get you, uh, you liked uh, Cassandra Wilson back in the day too. Yeah, you know, you know what I liked about her a lot was um, uh, she's more like a jazz musician than a vocalist. Uh, when mm -hmm. you hear her perform with her group, she's like another instrument. And yeah. uh, so she takes on sort of instrumental qualities. And plus she has that, you know, unique voice that doesn't sound like, you know, any other human voice yeah. um, right. like that. Uh, so I, I've always liked her too. Um, but um, 
the uh, ones I've got for next week are, are really good. Uh, and they bring in some other old friends that we've talked about on the podcast, too. Oh, that's um, always good. This is I'm looking forward to this already. Yeah, it's going to be really good. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that uh, next week's. Uh, yeah, I've got some uh, some odd an odd uh, juxtaposition of Baroque and contemporary that I'm gonna like uh, drop on people next week. Then mm-hmm. there's another uh, contemporary and, uh, and you know coupled with Mozart that's kind of an odd pairing. I'm really curious to know what Russ is going to think about this. Oh, okay. And then there's um, some Brahms as well, some old favorite stuff. Okay, Great. so that's what I got coming next week. Well, I guess that brings us to about the end here. I left the spiel out at the beginning, so if anyone's still with us at this point, I'd like to remind you all that uh, in our episode description, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we'll discuss in all of our episodes, and including this one. At the top of the description, there's going to be a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer. Where you can also follow us uh, on our podcast, uh, but you can catch the playlist to hear everything. I usually get it up early in the week. You can listen to the tunes before you listen to the podcast or after, whichever you prefer. And uh, you'll find us there at username Adult Music Podcast. You can follow us and catch the music uh, before the podcast. If you don't see the full description or list on your app, because some of them don't allow hyperlinks and whatnot, uh, jump over to our host site, Podbean, where all the links are uh, active and you can find access to everything. Now, if you enjoyed the podcast, uh, please do follow or subscribe whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. Uh, Take a minute, give us a ranking, write a review. Uh, It's going to help us get listed in the browsing category recommendations. That's going to help us grow our audience more. Uh, We'd appreciate that. Take a minute, uh, give us a five-star ranking, send us a comment on uh, wherever you listen to us. We're at the beginning of this, so five-star rankings help us a lot to reach more people, so we can really use those now. If you have any uh, other thing you'd like to let us know, you want to contact us directly, comments, questions, uh, we'd be happy to hear from you. Our email recommendations. Address, yes, our email address is adult music podcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. Uh, go back uh, if you heard this episode but didn't check out the Gil Rose interview that we released two days ago. Check that out. Classical music fans, you want to be on the uh, cutting edge of a modern orchestra recording. Um, modern music and uh, get Gil Rose's perspective. It was really interesting. Uh, I think you'll enjoy that. Yeah, and if you like our um, interviews in general, uh, go back to our Mike LaDon interview, which was yeah. also really interesting. Yeah, that was a great one. Uh, he really yeah. told us a lot. Uh, one of the best, uh, well, my favorite organ player. And, yeah, uh, also a lot of good ones out there. But yeah, yeah, we like him a lot. Yeah, he's uh, one of our really favorites. soulful, groovy and player. He, I'm pretty sure his new album too. It's all your fault. Will probably be one of our picks for favorite jazz albums of the year. Yeah, I think we both like definitely. it a lot. It's a great album, and he's also a really great uh, pianist too. Uh, and uh, you want to check that interview out as well. And um, we've hmm. got another interview. It's all it's been in the bag for a long time, but we have to wait to uh, release it and that's going to be coming up this month and uh, it's also a classical related uh, 
going into a forgotten master and we're going to release it on the day that the album is going to be released as well so you get yeah, that'll uh, be july 23rd if you're 23rd uh, that friday that's right uh there's going to be a new album of a forgotten composer whose works are now being recorded and the most insightful person who knows everything about that composer and also the conducter of the yeah, the composer is uh, Ranetsky, and we actually um, interviewed. We actually reviewed the first album in the series, right. and uh, then there's the second. I guess we'll do the second one too, huh? just because we did. Yeah, the we'll do it. We yeah, because it sounds really interesting. And yeah, uh, well, after they told us about him, we kind of got more interested. In, yeah, uh, in him. So yeah. and uh, it looks like there's going to be a lot more coming. Uh, so uh, that's good news uh, for uh, classical music and classical period uh, mm -hmm. there. So good things coming up. And uh, it looks like the jazz releases are rolling along after I was getting a little bit worried. So uh, at <laughs> least I know uh, next week, and I've got enough for a few more episodes. Uh, yeah. but, I'm uh, set for the whole summer because I think the, the first two uh, weeks in July, like a load of classical music. Yeah, that's right. There um, were these huge, records came huge out. massive releases you sent me about. So Yeah, yeah. no, that, that, most of them are on the Beast label. Um, somehow Beast just kind of just dumped all these like new amazing sounding recordings on the uh, on the market. I'm really looking forward to hearing That's every great. one of them. All of them are on SACD too, which is even better. Oh, so it's wow. going to have that uh, that uh, high sampling rate, uh, even surround uh, recording recorded sound. It's going to be great. Right. It's going to be good summer. Hmm. All right. I so think so this too. has been episode 22 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And we're going to have another great episode coming up next week. So stay tuned and we'll see you again next time. Mm -hmm.